people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. So, um, hello, everyone. Welcome to Twelve Rules for What. We're really happy. To, I'm sorry. My name, as ever, is Sam. Um, we are extremely happy to be joined by Matthew Remsky from the Conspirituality Podcast, which I think I recommended before on I don't remember which episode, but we definitely have um, suggested it at different times. It's a really great podcast. It um, explores the titular concept, which is the convergence, I guess, of two different spheres at least in the kind of the conventional academic description. On the one hand, conspiratorial, uh, sorry, con- conspiracy thinking. On the other hand, spirituality, movements, ideas, uh, groups, and so on like that. Um, it's a very fertile and ever-changing space. The, the podcast is really good for both bringing up you up to speed continuously in every single iteration with new events that have been happening, and also for drilling deeper into the more general um, history and theory and they uh, and understanding of why these things are uh, arriving now and it's got a really kind of diverse interesting range of kind of expertise on the podcast I really recommend it um we are here with Matthew Remsky as I said already and I wonder if you could just begin by telling us what is the general conspirituality thesis in the terms that you would uh, address it so there was a an article I think it's 2011 uh, I'd forgotten who the authors are are I think it's um is it Ward? It, Someone Ward? It's yeah, Charlotte. Charlotte Ward. It's Charlotte Ward and David Voas. And uh, Charlotte right. is an independent researcher, and uh, David Voas is a uh, religious studies professor who focuses on sociological issues. Um, and you're right; that's the derivation of the term and our sort of initial understanding of the space. And I've got the abstract from that paper here, actually, and I think it's just best to read it out into the record because it's very clear. So they say uh, the female-dominated New Age with its positive focus on self and the male-dominated realm of conspiracy theory with its negative focus on global politics may seem antithetical. There is a synthesis of the two, however, that we call conspirituality. Uh, They go on to talk about their methodology a little bit. They talk about how it has international celebrities, bestsellers, radio and TV stations. Um, They say that conspirituality offers a broad politico-spiritual philosophy based on two core convictions. Uh, The first is traditional to conspiracy theory, and the second is rooted in the new age. So firstly, uh, there is the belief that a secret group covertly controls or is trying to control the political and social order. And two, humanity is undergoing a paradigm shift in consciousness. Uh, And so proponents believe that the best strategy for dealing with the threat of a totalitarian new world order is to act in accordance with an awakened new paradigm worldview. One of the things that they say in the essay is that this kind of two-pronged approach allows people to modulate or mitigate their political cynicism with a kind of uh, hope for salvation. So that's the derivation. That's where that's the, that's the derivation. From. How would you that's say right. that the, the, the um, I guess it's probably too kind of nuanced and complicated to summarize, but how would you, how do you think that your um, project, the Conspiracy Podcast has um, taken or extended that thesis or I guess, um, nuanced it in various ways. That's obviously a very broad question, but well, also, changes? but it's a really it's a it's a it's a good question because I think uh, anybody writing about this in 2011 could not have possibly predicted the acceleration and thickening of the online aspects of this culture. Um, 
I think that we've paid some good attention to the fact that uh, it pervades popular culture through the influencer mechanism of uh, charismatic, you know, presentation through social media. And we've also, I think, pinpointed that uh, there's kind of this eternal return of themes that's facilitated by the fragmentary nature of social media that, for instance, uh, you know, a book uh, like The Secret can be published in 2006 and it can be studied and debunked and criticized for years, even in the mainstream media, but then it can pop up um, through seemingly, you know, uh, in, in, well, in new spaces, infinite times, because there are filter bubbles and click funnels that various influencers and various demographics in the wellness world uh, kind of capture. So the themes are squirrely. Um, they pop up in different places. They're very hard to address, debunk. Um, it's kind of like high-speed whack-a-mole. Um, I think that one of the major contributions of our podcast has been to add the... Um, sort of premise uh, or to describe the function of charismatic control within the social movement space of conspirituality uh, that often we're talking about um, influencers or content providers who take on the role of um, kind of soft cult leaders. And so we describe those dynamics. I think that uh, it would have been impossible for um, Ward and Voas to really anticipate um, the 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 online aspects, and it, that is instructive. It's not their fault. It's instructive still to this day because. Um, we see constantly uh, the sociologists who are working on the themes of conspirituality trying to catch up with the tech uh, and how the tech is actually um, working. I would say that um, uh, we've also noticed that influencers have discovered that their magpie instinct really pays off in terms of engagement. So if you have super inflammatory innuendo content, uh, that's really excellent for numbers and followers. And so there's a bunch of notable yoga and wellness influencers who have gamed the algorithms in 2020 by flirting with soft cue themes like save the children or, you know, 5G whatever, or, um, you know, vaccine conspiracies. I think we have done a good job at showing that uh, the, the clearest front-facing demographic is white women in conspirituality. Uh, we, we've known for a long time that, for instance, the, the demographic of yoga consumers is 80% women um, and mostly white. And that can lend a veneer of kind of feminist sentiment and respectability to conspirituality, even though it's driven by deeply conservative and patriarchal values about the nature of the value, the, the nature of the, the body and family. Um, I don't think that Ward and Voas could have anticipated the LARP factor or the live action role play factor that has been so important in the spread of both QAnon and conspirituality more generally. And this is, you know, the fact that that influencers might take on these views, not because they truly buy them, but because of online gamification or the opportunity to feel like a hero. In fact, uh, some of the people that we cover have just actually depicted themselves as superheroes in the fight against, you know, uh, online censorship. They've made cartoons out of themselves, which is kind of interesting. 
So um, yeah, there's been a lot of changes. The changes are accelerating. It's it's a real fire hose. Uh, but I think that Ward and Voas provide an amazing uh, initial sort of basis for for understanding how this is unfolding. Great. Yeah, there's so many kind of directions I want interested to go in. I, I would want to just note in passing that the um, that yeah, as you say, there's there's a kind of a almost as as with everything on on the internet, right? Um, as the everything kind of accelerates further and further, there's almost a kind of charming naivety to some of the things that are written about. Like there's a reference in um, in the in the paper to um, Obama and an Obama caricature um, living in Second Life with a kind of a New World right. Order T-shirt right. on, and I feel like Second Life is just such a an astonishing kind of um, uh, piece of very obviously dated uh, internet right. law. That it's right. it's very strange that that kind of in some ways like Avatar like. Um, life world that the internet promised i think in the early in the noughties and maybe even back to the 90s was simply displaced by an actually much more um script uh, words and images based um and, and right. less kind of virtual reality based and uh, perhaps there's something to be said for the the fact that in some ways because it is so sensuously lacking this images and text um, world because it is so sensuously lacking then the the fantasy has to come in from somewhere else rather than being kind of in the in the world itself um, yeah very much so I very much agree with that and, and when we're talking about um, how yoga wellness uh, new age people are always seeking to enliven their content through visual media uh, anything that uh, is transgressive or feels dangerous or edgy is going to be super super important um, and so that's played a factor too, for sure. I also wanted to say that the I think it, it's interesting that the the period since um, the period since they, they wrote is not only a period of the acceleration of social networks, but it's also a period of um, perhaps not unprecedented. I mean, there was a general crisis in the 13th century, and there was a, obviously a big crisis in the you know, year 330 as well in the Roman Empire. But a pretty astonishing uptick in number of and volume of and significance of crises at a fairly large level um, in that that 10 year period. And I thought that one of the things you said was really interesting about the relationship between um, crisis, or sorry, fragmentation and repetition. And I wanted to also suggest that there's another relationship between crisis and repetition, because not right. only are there, so these theories coming back um, endlessly, these kind of um, uh, debunked ideas kind of suddenly returning. And in some ways, what's happened in, for example, the COVID pandemic, when this is one of the things I don't know if you've had um, uh, where you are, but also we've had definitely in the UK, is lots of people trying to debunk the COVID pandemic and say that it isn't real um, by taking photos of empty hospitals. Right. So the image, um, which is very strange, um, because if, if you believe that COVID is real, then you would surely believe that they would empty hospitals and then fill them with COVID patients or at least to kind of partition the hospitals such that COVID patients and non-COVID patients didn't meet. Right. So I think that the, um, and so what, what would, if you truly understood the, um, what the crisis entails, what COVID entails, would make perfect sense, would be evidence for it. Because people have an image of past crises. So for example, when would you think that there will be an absolutely full hospital, just like bursting? It would be something after some sort of mass casualty incident, right? Like a terrorist right. attack or right. a mass shooting or something like that. Or like, a, or just even a, an, a, um, uh, even a kind of train crash, something like this, right? right. Um, and the, these are crises that are predictable and regular and clearly um, have an image associated with them. And because COVID doesn't look like those past images, the true 
the kind of what what is what should be evidence for the crisis is taken to be evidence against the crisis because it doesn't look like the hospitals you were expecting. It doesn't look like thousands of people kind of bustling around. It's very empty. It's very you know clinical. There's also, also there's also something about the function of um, uh, rapidly oscillating sources of cognitive dissonance too, because as I remember it, the photographs that were um, circulating about the, around the empty hospitals where we've set up this field hospital and there's nobody in it or photograph your hospital. That was happening throughout North America as well, but it came right on the heels of all kinds of footage of the uh, Italian hospitals, I believe, overflowing with, you know, what was obviously a mass casualty event at the beginning of the of the pandemic. And so the photographs, the memification of the empty hospital uh, then throws into doubt the earlier imagery uh, and suggests to the conspiratorial mindset that that must have been staged. Um, but there's something about the juxtaposition of the images in a flattened space that makes a sort of like easiest but laziest intellectual leap attractive, right? Well, the hospitals are empty. That must mean that those earlier images were, were faked instead of the hospitals are empty because the administrators are preparing for the disaster scene in Italy. So there's a, there's a, there's a speed of, of um, cognitive dissonance that I think characterizes the memification of, of the news cycle. Uh, and that's been mobilized very effectively by conspiritualists for sure. What do you think is the relative appeal of images of order or disorder to the conspiritualist mind? Um, I, um, on the far right, there's been a very kind of interesting transformation very obviously, fascism in its classical period, it's kind of 1920s, 1930s period, was attracted to images of order, very clearly. Whereas now I think what is what, what is most easily propelled through image networks, um, so through Instagram and so on, uh, and through Twitter, is and WhatsApp, of course, is images of disorder. And this is really um, quite a reversal of the... Um, the, the way in which images used to be deployed, I guess. And I'm just kind of wondering, images of harmony, images of, of beauty, images of chaos, images of violence. How did these different kinds of images play out in the experience minute? That sounds, that's a really evocative question. And my brain first goes to the thought that it's the yoga wellness and new age demographics that have actually inherited the aesthetics of uh, early 20th century fascism through the lionization of physical culture, through the body beautiful, through coordinated and synchronized movements, through, you know, you've got everybody lining up doing their CrossFit things and they all look like Greek gods. Um, and, and so that there's a, there's a continuity there that maybe allows for um, the, 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 the conspiritualist mind to say, well, there will be order, but a kind of individualistic and organic and natural order to the chaos that is uh, emergent from the, the, the storming of the capital or something like that. I think we should also remember too, that within new age spirituality, uh, the notion of the critical or um, painful transformative event is key to the notion of salvation. So um, 
every, I mean, there were, there were, uh, conspirituality influencers at the, uh, storming of the Capitol, um, broad, they, they were sort of live streaming their own prayers and benedictions for the stormers, um, with, you know, framed with their meditation beads and their, you know, mantras and their incense and their rhetoric that was all about, you know, this battlefield is kind of uh, happening on a divine plane. And so, um, uh, you know, we understand that the truth is being revealed and it's going to be messy, but it's coming. Um, so, um, there's there's a way in which there's a way in which conspirituality actually lends a kind of hopeful aesthetic outcome to the nihilistic chaos that is visualized by QAnon. Um, so yeah, that's where I go first. Is that it's it's almost it's not that it's not that the the Lenny Riefenstahl aesthetics of uh, you know Berlin uh, the the Berlin Olympics have gone away. They've that's been naturalized and commodified into wellness culture, uh, so that not everything on the right looks like the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo Boys in their dumb shirts. That's a, that's a right, that's right. A, yeah, yeah. No, sure. Yeah, that's what he gets. Um, or looks like the kind of the even more extreme groups, um, the kind of the um, terror wave um, right. groups. I wanted to kind of skip ahead in, in the kind of questions I sent to you. Um, talk about demographics. You mentioned um, women being yeah. kind of the main demographic, or particularly white women being the main demographic of of yoga um, in North America, I guess, um, probably not globally, but um, yeah, North America at least. Um, that's obviously in some ways very different from a uh, demographic that is normally attracted to uh, the far right. And I was wondering right. if you thought, is it, is, it, is it connect? Is it true that there is a kind of an absence of like young men in the conspirituality milieu? Is this, are, they, are these actually such opposed demographics or do you think there is a, the point of convergence or what do you, what do you think? Well, I think there are points of convergence generally between the two worlds that um, you know we have in in Ward and Voas's framing. We have you know female uh, New Age oriented spiritualists, and then male you know global politics oriented conspiracists. And I think that you know the the crossovers are really mind bending. Actually, we have. Alex Jones, who sells health supplements and new age cures. We have the new age comedian and COVID denier, JP Sears, who's doing military tactical training. Uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a CrossFit queen who says that her weird chin-ups will protect her from COVID. Uh, so the worlds are really blended together. And I think they're a lot closer than we know insofar as the yoga and spirituality worlds of global capitalism actually have their roots in 19th century nationalism movements that, that were really obsessed about the pure connections between homelands and their peoples. Um, so I wrote about that history a little bit, and I've, I, I, in my notes here, I've got a key paragraph from that, which, is, which just reads, Nazis loved yoga, um, not for its therapeutic value, not because they wanted world peace, uh, not because they wanted to chill out, but for them, yoga was an occult tour for purifying and exalting the individual body as a microcosm of the nation that would ultimately triumph over a conspiracy of child abusing Jews and impure invaders. So Nazis cherry picked the hawkish themes out of Indo-Tibetan yoga 
fantasizing about becoming invulnerable in body and spirit. Uh, Himmler carried around a copy of the Bhagavad Gita and he conceived of the SS as a yogic monastic order. And then a whole generation of German Indologists brought Sanskrit tomes back to the fatherland and they meditated on the ancient Vedic hymns to the elements. So, and then Hitler, of course, was a, was a vegetarian and nature cure fanatic. Um, you know, with regard to are there young men involved? Yeah, there are. Uh, there aren't as many, but there are some key ones. And, you know, they've, they've, uh, if we go right to the center of uh, QAnon, they're all there lined up in a row. Uh, and, and they all associate, uh, or many of them associate their fascinations with uh, esotericism or, um, or, or various ecstatic experiences. Like Frederick Brennan, who designed 8chan, uh, said that he did it after a psychedelic trip. Uh, there's a guy named Champ Perinia who who drew out the Q map, who also uh, attributed his his visualization of the world of conspiracies to psychedelics. Um, in in Hoback's documentary, which just aired on HBO here in North America, you can see a kind of spiritual yearning used out of all of the Q tubing bros. Um, they found something Zen, they found something mystical. It seems like they're turned on by poetry for perhaps the first time in their lives. And also, you know, one intersecting demographic is, is, with, is with all of the, the bro culture that came out of the men's rights movements, um, you know, where there's a fascination with sacred masculinity. Um, there was a podcast where, where Christiane Northrup went on to Andrew Wakefield's show. He's the, the anti-vax fraudster. Uh, and, and, the, and it was on Mother's Day and she praised him for being a sacred guardian of women. Um, and that kind of shit can be really magnetic for otherwise non-spiritually inclined men. And then there's also uh, an intersection with ecstatic evangelism uh, or men, especially in North America, who have some cultural memory of spirit possession, speaking in tongues. Um, these are all like very plausible release valves for the pain of, you know, middle-aged displacement. Uh, you know, we we understand that right-wing recruitment comes from this kind of uh, depression regarding the loss of social status. Well, you know, imagine if Walter in Breaking Bad decided to you know, monetize supplements or Q drops instead of cooking meth. I think that's that's kind of what we're looking at. And there will be an, a Q drop NFT. That's right. Right. Exactly. Soon, maybe. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should just um probably I should probably mention that uh, Frederick Brennan is uh although he did design HN is not involved yes. with QAnon. No, no. no in fact, he's, yes. Against. Let's yeah. just let's. He's he's actually one of the main. Um, whistleblowers in fact yeah. <laughs> if not if not the main whistleblower uh and and props to him because he's had a wild uh, journey and and um he's been through an incredible amount and i'm you know everybody should be very grateful to frederick brennan for what he was able to do uh eventually yes um as a, in, in 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 the far right, I mean, I'm kind of consistent with the demographic question. In the far right, the, the younger people tend to be more radical, and they also tend to have more coherent beliefs. Um, and I, I wanted to go back to this kind of thing you were talking about earlier, which was the relationship between sensuousness and images. And very, uh, I'm speaking on the internet. Very often, um, one of the kind of driving cores of far right um, 
politics uh, for young men is a resistance to or an objection to um, what they see as the kind of domination of pornography over their lives. So mm-hmm. porn is probably the most like obviously sensuous kind of image when it's available is like available on the internet. And a lot of the time that pornography becomes part of this kind of like conspiracy thinking that um, pornography is a tool being used by um, Jews by and large in order to like dominate the sexualities of young men and like steer them off the kind of the righteous path of um well, it depends which part of the far right you're in. Either it's uh, steering off the far the, the righteous path t- towards Christ, or towards your kind of pagan sexuality or kind of pagan rootedness in a particular place, or it's um, the righteous path of um, some other kind of conventional uh, form of uh, sexuality. And I wanted to like see if there was a kind of connection there between the organised far right and conspirituality movements, in that there is a the same kind of mastery through abstention um, that operates in these conspiracy communities. One thousand percent, but uh, it's mitigated or framed through notions of sacred sexuality uh, in which heteronormative binaries are the image of the divine, but also the social rubric is towards sex positivity. So there's less overt uh, misogyny. Uh, uh, there is, it's more like a structural misogyny that really uh, concretizes gender binaries in a very conservative way. Um, this is also why most or many conspiritualists are transphobic or they, or they use anti-trans rhetoric, for example, because trans identities represent corruptions of nature as far as they're concerned. So yeah, there's endless workshops and divine relationships and the recirculation of sexual energy and how um, all of this relates to some very pre-modern ideas about the sanctity of of like come as a source of vitality and immunity so um, that's huge within within uh, new age spirituality especially when it tends towards eco-fascism and notions of of strengthening the relationship between the homeland and the body so yeah the proud boys no fap kind of fascination, which is really protesting too much because they're talking about something that they're endlessly attracted to, but also feel corrupted by. It's not just about weaning oneself from the horrible distractions of women uh, so that they can be, you know, um, ethno-nationalist monks or something like that. It's also about building a kind of internal fortitude. fortitude. Um, and that's what that's what's that's what's part of um, you know when you see them give these displays of like public milk drinking. There's a scientific um, explanation for that. That's all about that's all about. Well, you know, immigrants are lactose intolerant, but we can drink the milk that we squeeze out of the teats of our own cows. And and if people can't, then they're vegans and they should fuck off. Well, um, they're also appealing. There's also a subtext there of milk being very much like seminal fluid and it's going to build their balls up so that the race doesn't die. And that's part of the 14 words as well. Um, So there's no, I mean, there's no doubt that porn there, however, is at the heart of the QAnon economy and fascinations. And I think you're right that, that, that pornography is absolutely about the control and commodification of sexuality. Um, It is so compulsive for people who are addicted to it that, um, 
it's <laughs> I it's not surprising that conspiracy theories develop around you know who's controlling it, not necessarily um, you know who gets negatively impacted by it. Uh, it's a very selfish set of concerns, but I think it also allows for the safety of emotional dissociation, and that would be uh, a key dis distinguisher between um, the conspirituality set, which values a kind of embodied presence with one's sexuality, uh, and then the more sort of alt-right um, uh, sensibility, which is much more about rising up above the battlefield of, of desires. Yes, and and, and uh, the it's not that one is attempting to have a kind of, uh, the young men are attempting to have, in the organized far right, attempting to have a... Um, uh, an authentic and more kind of present, as you said, like relationship to women, but the, the attempt is to possess them, you know, yeah, in a, exactly. In a different way. Right. Um, yeah. It's not about, it's not about, um, it's not about understanding oneself better so that, so that you can be uh, a, a, you know, a more masterful divine masculine. Uh, it's defining, it's, it's, it's understanding your sort of male invulnerability uh, and place in the hierarchy of power. So yeah, uh, different takes, similar, similar roots though. You mentioned ecofascism, um, and I wanted to kind of pick up on this, this term. Um, it's a very contested term, obviously. And I wanted to just see what, what, what it is, what is it that you understand by ecofascism? Um, it, you know, I think I've been aware within um, ecological activism discourses that it is a contested term. The way that I use it is to simply, and maybe this is naive, uh, but to describe um, the biomorality of new age yoga and wellness spiritualities that make these um, assumptions about the relationship between the body and the homeland that inevitably take on, uh, you know, xenophobic impacts. Um, so the immune system and one's fascination with the immune system becomes microcosmic to um, a kind of broader fascination with uh, the firmness of, of, you know, state borders or the borders of the homeland. And so, um, the other aspect of, of ecofascism that uh, I really sort of zero in on amongst this set is the very individualistic lionization of the individual body as being uh, heroic and triumphant over, you know, social degradation. Um, so so the, the body is not uh, an interdependent uh, you know, amorphous, uh, porous um, set of relationships. It is really a, a statue uh, to, um, you know, posterity that, that represents a kind of unifying heritage where all meaning is invested in, you know, ancestral meaning. So, so yeah, uh, and, and, that, and that, the, that the, the, the purity and the sanctity of the place that you're from uh, which is paradoxical because who's from anywhere really in the age of globalization um, 
but, and, and that's part of part of what ecofascism, I think, is is in contemporary forms is trying to respond to is this feeling of displacement that that where, where are we actually from when I can get on a plane uh, and you know reconnect with my essential nature in Costa Rica in four hours? What does that actually mean about where I live? And I think that's an underlying kind of uh, unconscious anxiety that drives this need to say, oh, I am an organic person and here's my organic smoothie. I think there's also a, a, a even um, a, slightly, a slightly different, but I think of related ambivalence in what I would describe as ecofascism, which is the relationship between, um, which is the relationship to capitalism. Um, and this is why I think that it, um, that the fascism term in ecofascism is not misplaced. I think because I think fascism has a ambivalent relationship to capitalism as well, even as it um, utilizes fascism. It, sorry, even as it utilizes capitalism to to do what it what it, right. what it does. Um, in that ecofascism is somehow a response to an uncertainty about the naturalness of one's own superiority. So it's a um, it's it's a it's um it's a it's a creed in which one attempts to assert one's own naturalness, although that one's own natural superiority over others, while at the same time disavowing the mechanism of that superiority, which is right. colonialism, um, right. or has been colonialism, right? So the um, so one one attempts to get rid of. Of, of the the very mechanism of one's own, of one's own superiority while maintaining one's superiority, um, I think that's that's my that's my read on what ecofascism is about. Right. I'll I'll cash that out uh, at some other time, I guess, right, in, right. in better terms. Um, okay, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll go into this kind of this more kind of less theoretical, more kind of contemporary uh, question about anti-lockdown protests, anti-vax protests. There have been, I think, fewer in the UK than it have been elsewhere, but definitely it's now a growing movement. It's now accelerating. Uh, in early 2021, people were very spooked here uh, in 2020, and there were a few anti-lockdown protests, but not very many. There was a broad acceptance of the necessity of the measures uh, by most people, I think. Um, they've been understood, at least here, as um, essentially far-right movements. Um, right. I don't know if that classification is true, and this is what I'm kind of trying to get at. Um, if we accept the kind of conspirituality thesis, do you think there is a reason for anti-fascists to worry that people who go to these anti-lockdown protests are being exposed to like essentially far-right ideas? Or is or is this is anti-fascism here or is like the far right not really the correct frame for this and the motivations of this movement at all? Is it is just the, the wrong frame? It's entirely possible it is. I think that anti-fascists would be wise to recognize that the psychosocial roots of fascism blossom as right-wing presentations most of the time, but to their participants, I think they feel uh, quote-unquote natural, pure, organic, original, authentic. And, and in this framing, I think that the inevitable right-wing ideologies and, and racism and, and misogyny that pours out of conspirituality positions is an effect of that and, and maybe largely unconscious. Um, they, you know, the people that, that we study and that I've spoken to really believe it is not racist to obscure public health directives that disproportionately benefit minorities. Um, 
it's not just white fragility that makes them allergic to considering their racism. It's that their racism is bound up in beliefs about the organic harmony with the world that they believe transcend race. So um, are they being exposed to right-wing ideas? Yeah, they are. And to the extent that the Proud Boys or, you know, the, 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 the Boogaloo Boys or whoever, or, you know, the Jordan Peterson shock troops can, can, can modulate their, their um, xenophobia to make it more implicit as they're standing shoulder to shoulder at the anti-mask lockdown. Uh, they, they will be exposed to, to right-wing ideas for sure. Um, so yeah, uh, I also want to note though that the in real life QAnon protests in the United States and in New Zealand were both organized by First Nations guys. So in the US, the Save the Children organizer was of Navajo heritage. And then in New Zealand, the most prominent QAnon guy is Billy TK. Uh, he's a blues musician and he's Maori by heritage. And so the the notion that, um, you know, somehow, somehow we've got we've got leftists, minority, minorities, uh, people who would consider themselves to be progressive, brushing up against far right ideologies is, I think it's a lot more complicated uh, because especially when we get a conspirituality heavy movement like QAnon involved, um, it can be very, very diverse. Uh, you know, here in Canada, there was a there was some First Nations QAnon organizing that made a lot of sense because our country's genocidal policies in relation to residential schooling and so on made descriptions of the cabal very resonant to uh, a number of people. And so, you know, I think I think that that we really have to uh, acknowledge that um, you know when 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 we're looking at how demographics converge in the anti-masking space, we're looking at a fucking scramble that has to be navigated with a lot of care. And and anti-fascists, I think, want to take care to understand that marginalized people can be attracted to this stuff for really really good reasons. I mean, because I think you, I think the bias of the, the 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 arc of your the arc of your question is like, um, if anti-mask protests are far right phenomena, um, is it a matter of other stakeholders, uh, you know, in those sentiments, will they be attracted in sort of deceptively and be exposed to far right ideas? Well, I think the anti-mask protesters are not necessarily far right to begin with, uh, and that. Um, the, the common cause that uh, the demographics find is very, very powerful and compelling. Um, it is anti-authoritarian. Uh, it is cognizant of, of, you know, predatory medical systems, especially in the US. Uh, it is very wary of, uh, you know, techno capitalism and techno and, and surveillance capitalism. They've got a lot of things right. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> they've got a, they've they've got a lot of things right, and they are filling in the blanks with moral panicry and fantasy and the bullshit that that people from Chan boards are are feeding them. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's I, I think I think 
in in general, if we're talking about what has the most physical impact on people's lives in the world, that far right ideologies are the most violent and the most dangerous. And to the extent that people who otherwise wouldn't be standing shoulder to shoulder with Proud Boys uh, are going to the same anti-masking rallies, I that hurts my heart for sure. Uh, and yeah, I think, but but I think that that you know how anti-fascists respond to that, you know, has to be to turn to the leftist, the minority protester and say, and say, we have a better story for you about why, about why, you know, the government hates your guts because it does. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so let's change the channel. Do you think that there's, there's something in particular that is, so in the context of the, the, the UK lockdown, there's, there's not, a, a movement in favor of lockdown. It wouldn't make any sense for that to be a movement in favor of lockdown. Um, it's the government policy. Uh, it's people just do it. Uh, so that, in, in some sense, there's a movement in favor of it. Um, it's not really a leftist movement. And so like the, in some ways, like at the moment, the um, the politics around lockdown are kind of polarized around officialdom and anti-officialdom. Right. Um, and I was wondering if you thought there was a, a, a way in which people on the left more generally, not necessarily just anti-fascists, but the way the left more generally could become in some ways more attractive so that some of the, what you were describing as psychosocial um, energy, is that the wrong word maybe? Psychosocial kind of dynamics of these movements that make them attractive to people on the, uh, to make that make people attracted to movements that are implicitly far right might also become features of, left-wing movements that might make or progressive movements that might make them more attractive. I mean, is there something about leftism in general that is psychosocially unattractive to people who, for example, understand themselves in uh, the hero archetype, which you mentioned before? I, I think there's a lot of unattractiveness and also boredom uh, because, um, I mean, one of our, one of our most sort of haunting, uh, but also effective, and he's like just a towering uh activist and intellect, Imran Ahmed. Uh, I think he was a guest on our episode number 10. Uh, he basically said, um, you, you know, nobody retweets the NHS. Uh, and that's a major problem. And we've gone on to try to fill out why that is. And, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, to retweet the, the NHS is boring. Uh, and it's not transgressive, and it's not um, uh, inflammatory. It's it doesn't make allusions to things, uh, except you know to to danger coming from you know authority sources that people might not trust. And so you know, what's the more attractive uh, question? I don't think it's uh, let's. Um, Come go out into the street at 7 p.m. and bang pots and pans for the NHS. I think that was nice for a while. I think it's more that realize that, you know, the, the government policy of Boris Johnson and uh, Doug Ford here in Toronto in, and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil are neoliberal patchwork 
pro-business policies that are not about public health, actually. They pay lip service to public health. Their, their, their position towards public health is public health is what facilitates business and the flow of capital, right? And so they're not, that, that, that's, the, the, the balance is not, we're going to save as many lives as possible. It's we are going to do what we can to make sure that people are able to keep going to their Amazon fulfillment center jobs. Uh, and, and, and I think if the left begins to tell that story, it becomes much more attractive, I think, to imagine a kind of heroism around, okay, we're going to decide as a local community that this is how we're going to respect the science of the epidemiologists. This is how we are going to um, uh, take uh, retreat time for the next 30 days. This is how we're going to support each other with, um, you know, equaling out our, our our economic needs for however much time that we have to to be shut in. I think this is, I've, as I'm saying all of this, I sound like I'm dreaming a little bit, but um, because, because these things are very difficult to organize, but I, I just, it's like, it's not. It's not like neoliberal governments offer a um, a compelling pathway uh, or story that could possibly compete against QAnon or conspirituality. In fact, every movement they make kind of proves the point, which is that you know the governments aren't really that interested in uh, in in health protection. That's not the top priority. Um, and even if uh, the fears around vaccines or the PCR tests are all completely exaggerated with a whole bunch of bullshit, um, there's this basic feeling that people have that they have been living in a state of neglect. Uh, and, and that's the story that has to be overturned, I think. That's the, that's the story that has to be countered with something better. Yeah, I, I was. I, I totally appreciate the points about the um, the NHS. I was in actually hospital yesterday, uh, so shout out to the NHS. I would retweet them now, but um, I feel like people would retweet nursing nursing unions, right? Campaign yes. for better pay. Yes, that's exactly like that, so what there, I'm talking about. That's exactly what so I'm talking about. There is an oppositionality. Yeah, right. There right. is. There and, is. A, there is a possible. Yeah, and there's something, and there's, and I, and I hope that I hope that the the archetype of the embattled. Um, uh, you know, frontline healthcare worker actually makes it into Rosie the Riveter status. I mean, for fuck's sake, like the NHS nurse who has not taken off her N95 mask for 18 hours, she should be on every post with her, you know, her bicep flexing, right? Like that's what, this is what I'm talking about is that, is that there's, there's gotta be there's gotta be uh, a, a, a an, an archetypology of heroism that comes out of actual care, uh, and not and not um, let's let's try to get through this as best we can, so that we can continue re continue receiving our Amazon deliveries, right? Um, because Boris Johnson is not is not he he he's, does not care about <laughs> that's not this is not his this is not his concern, so he's not going to be uh, a reasonable. And I think, you know, come to think of it, I haven't, I haven't really, I don't think I've verbalized this yet, but in fact, the, the helplessness of the typical neoliberal politician, the waffling-ness, the, the, the complete lack of moral center probably is what drives 
them archetypally towards this uh, place within the QAnon mythology of, well, they must be pedophiles. They must be blood drinkers. They have no moral fiber. They don't, they don't actually give a shit about anybody. Of course, they're just giving money to each other, right? And so, yeah, I think, thank you for whatever you did to ask that question, because like, I, that, it, it makes a lot of sense that, that the kind of wishy-washy, you know, go as the wind blows, but make sure you line your pockets figure that is at the head of most global North states, obviously they are making a killing while everybody else dies. Why wouldn't they be eating your children? Because they kind of are. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great line. Um, no, I agree. I, I totally agree. I mean, there's a, uh, yeah. Um, Trump is gone, more or less. Um, did Trump matter? And will it matter that he's gone? Mm hmm. I mean, I, I hear that question, like, just just to focus on what I've been studying on in the relationship between um, QAnon as a kind of peak fever dream in this space and conspirituality as the commodification of its themes. So, um, you know, Hoback's documentary did this incredible antiseptic job of shining sunlight on the fact that, oh my God, there is one troll one fucking cynic sitting in his condo in japan uh making all of these q posts from january 2018 onwards and individual actions have incredible impacts and uh and and the 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 veil falls like the the curtain is drawn back the wizard is seen there he's operating his laptop and uh, and he he immediately shrinks to nothing. Um, Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins are done in terms of their public impact. In fact, if they're not hunted down and killed by, you know, members of 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 the families of people whose lives they destroyed, I, I would be very surprised. But the people who continue to make money from the same themes, from this double offering of uh, the world is terrible and terrible things are happening, but I have the solution to it and it's your ultimate salvation. That basic scam, it's never been more lucrative. So, uh, and, and I think that public crises will only accelerate it. Now there are, you know, somewhat successful efforts to deplatform some of the conspiritualists that we study. But, you know, when I comparatively think about the difference between where the Ron and Jim Watkins are going to be uh, in six months and where somebody like Sayer G, who's the founder of Green Med Info, is going to be, very, very different places. Um, the yoga, wellness, new age, conspirituality crew is so normalized, so well monetized, so well networked, and so domesticated into North American and European economies uh, that they're just going to figure out how not to get deplatformed. And if they are, they're going to migrate to more sheltered spaces and, you know, probably continue to amass Bitcoin or whatever. Uh, and so, and so they will have an ongoing influence. And I think maybe the primary impact of the Trump era upon that economy was a kind of acceleration of its technological prowess. Um, 
you know, it's like they, they had their brush with QAnon. They, um, they sipped from that poison chalice a little bit enough to get high, but not enough to get really sick. Uh, they, it helped them boost their engagement. Uh, and now they're, now they're going to move on and continue to monetize snake oil. So, um, if anything, if anything, I think that that uh, the Trump era has been an accelerant for conspirituality. But but not necessarily. Its its end doesn't necessarily mean that it will be over. No, not at no, all. Not at all. No, no. This is what I'm saying is that is that like yeah. all of the uh, all of you know the the capital stormers are all going to be in jail. Um, the 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 people who are trying to monetize you know. QAnon bullshit on on YouTube. They've all been deplatformed. Uh, those casualties of this fever dream have been thrown under the bus. Uh, they are they are going to be nowhere in my estimation. Some of them might you know figure out a new grift or or in a different space or something like that. But I mean, the 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 people who we follow. Uh, Sayer G, his wife Kelly Brogan, Christiane Northrup, Zach Bush, Del Big Tree, um, you know, uh, Sasha Stone, Mickey Willis. These people are amazing chameleons uh, and fantastic um, technological operators. And and um, I, I think that I think that uh, the Trump era was kind of a testing ground for their skills. That's quite a stark divergence from how I predict or how I think about. Fire influencers. Um, fire influencers, when there are big waves, lots of people want to become the influencer, when they're kind of big ascensions of uh, you know, interest in the far right, like in the alt-right period. Um, and then when the when it declines, um, interest declines, lots of people who are more casual fall off. And so in the economic incentives, in a very kind of more or straightforward way, um, tend towards the more extreme elements of the movement. So yeah, people right. start to move towards more and more extreme stuff um, because that's where the money is. That's, that's where your supporters will continue to pay you um, to say right. more and more edgy things because fundamentally the logic is be edgy, um, even relative to what you were saying a month ago and so on. And so you get more and more extreme spirals and then eventually you fall off the end where you begin, you get deplatformed and um, you know even Telegram, <laughs> which is a pretty uh, open and liberal platform, decides that you can no longer be um, on it and your movement essentially falls apart or you do something really stupid like um, actually inspire a mass shooting under that. Right. Yeah, so there's a, that's a very interesting. Do you think that there, this will become essentially... A kind of a, a background noise in culture in the same kind of way that it was before the Trump period, but just louder? Or do you think that's well, going to be like distinct kind of tendencies or movements within it? I mean, I think I think that that um, the, with the people that we study, they are able to sink back into the mainstream of new age wellness and yoga grifting, uh, which is basically to sell products that serve the aspirational self. But when things heat up, uh, they will be there to pick up like magpies, the most inflammatory elements of whatever is being circulated. Uh, and so, um, and, and they're going to do it according to the same premises. They're going to do it uh, functionally through their charisma. They're going to do it uh, thematically through this Kind of contra this this tantalizing contradiction between terrible things happening in the world, but magical herbs that will make everything better. Um, so the techniques will stay the same. Um, and 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 uh, yeah, as I said, if if anything, I think they've been kind of um, they've gone through a kind of burnishing process. 
Thank you. Do you have anything you want to say before we finish? Any final thoughts? I think, yeah, that the one thing you, you know, you said, you said, um, what do, what, what do anti-fascists or leftists need to do? And I, I do have just a couple of thoughts. One is that, um, uh, leftists and anti-fascists have to win something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. And, and I think that has got to go beyond street battles um, as, as essential for elements of the culture as that might be in terms of like creating space and, and making sure people are safe when they express their political views. Um, but I think, the, I think the wins have to come really through community organization uh, that will produce better stories than conspiritualists offer, but more importantly, better relationships uh, because... Um, you know, I'm the person on the on our podcast who focuses on the cultic dynamics of this material, and the thing that is, I think, most toxic about conspirituality, even more so of QAnon, is that it is really built on uh, networks of disorganized attachment relationships, relationships of high intensity, coercion, and ultimately betrayal. And to the extent that those same social dynamics emerge in anti-fascist or leftist spaces, the movements are fucked because, because that's what destroys, that's what, that's what I've seen in my political life uh, weigh heaviest upon the most altruistic people is that, is that when cultic dynamics show up in, you know, Extinction Rebellion or in, um, uh, uh, you know, you, you name it, whatever, whatever social movement of high intensity you've got, um, that's what drives people into the arms of Jordan Peterson. That's what drives people into the arms of, uh, you know, influencers on the right who say, oh yeah, well, you know, Robin D'Angelo never, never cared about you and she just wanted you to hate hate yourself and and she just wanted you to interrogate your whiteness and and what does that even mean and so um i think we have to especially with young people we have to take take uh really really careful care with making sure that needs are met um relationships are never coercive uh older activists are not getting younger activists to do their dirty work um that uh that that you that we create communities of care that people uh actually really do feel safe in because the relationships are prioritized over the ideology yes i think that's all that's all extremely good advice and i also think that the um, that's like a attention in which um the subculturalness of anti-fascism and the subculturalness of of leftism more generally even has contributed to its demise um contributed to its failure to um produce uh wins or victories right um, yes and and that the 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 you know the essentialness of winning is to um deflate the impetus towards horizontal violence uh because progressives you know circle up the firing squad I think because they don't have anyone else to to really have an impact upon. <laughs> so you know the self criticism and the the other and the and the and the criticism of allies and the you know all of that all of that stuff um, is is really a symptom of um, I think despair and and I think we should look that straight in the eyes. Fantastic! Thank you very much. Uh, that was excellent. Um, 
go listen to the Conspiracy podcast. It's available on all podcast sites, available where this podcast is. Uh, so if you're listening to us, you can listen to that. Uh, I really recommend it. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Sam. How can we imagine a world beyond prisons and police, borders and surveillance? Rust Belt Abolition Radio is an abolitionist media and movement building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Each monthly episode amplifies the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explores ongoing work in the movement to abolish the carceral state and racial capitalism. Tune in to Rust Belt Abolition Radio here on the Channel Zero Network and visit www.rustbeltradio.org to learn more. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. 12 rules for what?